Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is part two of our episode on Emily Hobhouse. And in part one, we talked about her early life. We talked about the basic overview of the Second Anglo-Boer War, also called the Second War of Independence from the Boer perspective. We talked about her work investigating concentration camps where Boers are being held during the war and her efforts to bring relief uh, and improve those conditions in those camps. Um, That is the work that she is most known for today, especially outside of South Africa. But her work in South Africa continued after the war was over. And her work as a humanitarian and a peace activist continued during and after World War I. So that's what we're talking about today. I feel like a person who didn't listen to part one is probably not going to be totally lost, but there's like a lot of stuff in there that we're not really going to go over again. You will miss some context. For example, Emily Hobhouse's work in South Africa during the Second Boer War led to her being deeply reviled by many British authorities there and by people back in Britain. Although there were some people who saw the conditions that she had exposed as a moral failure of the British Empire, which urgently needed to be corrected, others branded her as a traitor. Lord Horatio Herbert Kitchener, who replaced Lord Frederick Roberts as commander-in-chief of the British forces during the war, called her that bloody woman. 
In the spring of 1902, Hobhouse went to France to try to recover from the time she had spent in South Africa and then also that time she had tried to go back and was sent back to Britain immediately. Her work uh, and that trip had been just physically and psychologically grueling. She also had a heart condition. As she recuperated in France, she also worked on a book called The Brunt of the War and Where It Fell, which came out later in 1902. This book contained firsthand accounts from the concentration camps for Boers, which people dictated to her while she was there. A lot of the women in the camps didn't know how to write, and the army heavily censored the letters of those who did, so this became one of the primary historical sources for Boer accounts of the camps. Hobhouse heard the announcement that the war was over while she was still in France. Under the Treaty of Vereeniging, signed on May 31st of 1902, the Boer Republic became British territory, but with the promise that they would become self-governing. The treaty also included three million pounds sterling to fund reconstruction efforts and another three million pounds in interest-free loans. Overwhelmingly, the terms of this treaty applied to the Boer population of South Africa. In other words, white people, primarily of Dutch ancestry, they did not apply to the Black population of the region or to any other people of color. So that relief money was relief money for white people. The treaty specified that voting rights for Black people would not even be discussed in this area until after the former South African Republic, also called the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, had become self-governing. So it was like these two colonial groups had a war with each other in someone else's territory, and then in the treaty that ended that war, not only did not address but disenfranchised the local population who had not asked for this at all. In 1903, Hobhouse returned to South Africa to continue her humanitarian work. She had again raised money to buy food and supplies to deliver to the Boer people who had been affected by the war and the scorched earth policy. As we discussed in part one, many of the people who were held in concentration camps either went there or were forced there after the British military had burned down their homes and farms. So Hobhouse wanted to see how these people were faring during the post-war reconstruction. She talked to one Boer family after another who was really struggling. Hunger was widespread. The people she talked to said that they had not seen any of that relief money at all. Part of this was because the way the money was being apportioned. People who had remained loyal to Britain throughout the war and Boer men who had surrendered and signed loyalty oaths who were also known as hands-uppers, they were given priority. People who had continued to fight were farther down the list, and bitter-enders, or the people who had fought to the bitter end, they were last. Aside from that hierarchy and who was getting relief, though, Hobhouse thought corruption and waste were keeping these funds from getting to the people who needed them. Hobhouse distributed as much food and as many supplies as she could, but she also just did not see a way for the Boers to recover from the effects of the scorched-earth policy that had led to the destruction of so many homes and farms. In addition to their homes being burned down, people's animals had been confiscated or killed, including the teams that they would normally use to plow, so farmers had no way to start planting again and to get back on their feet. Hobhouse realized that it was critical for farmers to get some crops into the ground. 
She thought maybe if each district had a plowing team, that team could rotate through the farms to prepare the soil for planting, rather than expecting every farm to find the money to buy and feed its own team of animals. She thought the reconstruction effort needed to include making sure every farm family had what they needed to plow and plant for the first couple of seasons after the war, after which point they should be able to sustain themselves. So Emily Hobhouse started raising money to buy teams of oxen that could be shared among farmers to get the planting season started. Since these animals were going to need to plow multiple farms consecutively, she focused on the strongest, healthiest animals she could find. And word started to spread about what she was doing. In one account, she was at a cattle auction, and people wondered what in the world this middle-aged British woman was doing buying all of the best animals. And when they realized that she was buying them for this relief effort, they stopped bidding against her. Hobhouse tried to get churches and other relief organizations and the colonial government interested in this plowing program. She knew that she couldn't stay in South Africa forever, and she didn't want it to fall apart without her there to oversee things. But for the most part, British authorities still saw her as a nuisance at best. They stridently denied her reports of hunger and a lack of relief money in the former Boer Republic's Uh, And they denied the idea that relief boards responsible for distributing the money were doing anything wrong. Newspapers called her her plowing plan absurd and described her as hysterical. Her response was this, quote, To call a woman hysterical because you have not the knowledge necessary to deny her facts is the last refuge of the unmanly and the coward. I always felt, when termed hysterical, that I had triumphed because it meant my arguments cannot be met nor my statements denied. Hobhouse returned to Europe in late 1903, having spent about six months in South Africa. The plowing teams were set to continue in her absence, and her next project was an effort to establish educational systems for Boer women and girls. Families needed more ways to earn money, but a lot of jobs weren't considered appropriate for women. In Britain, for example, a woman might work as a teacher or in domestic service. Those were considered to be okay, but a lot of Boer women did not have the education that was required to teach. And in South Africa, a lot of white people saw domestic service as Black women's work, so there was an element of racism in the jobs people were willing to do. So Hobhouse transformed the South Africa Women and Children Distress Fund into the Boer Home Industries and Aid Society to raise money to establish programs that would allow Boer women and girls to earn money to support themselves and their families. At first, she was focused on the idea of starting lace-making schools, and she spent some time in Belgium studying lace-making. But as she discussed her plans with other people, some of them pointed out that lace was really a luxury item, and while it might be possible to export it, the market for lace within South Africa was going to be limited. So she traveled to Ireland to learn about spinning and weaving. This would allow women and girls to earn money, and it would also help people deal with shortages of practical, everyday goods like rugs and towels. She started buying spinning wheels and having them shipped to South Africa. She'd also been keeping up a regular correspondence with Jan Smuts, who had been a general in the Boer forces during the war. 
Smuts wrote Hobhouse a letter that was extremely critical of the British government and of English officials in South Africa. Smuts had never intended for this letter to become public, but Hobhouse had it published. It backed up a lot of what she had been saying. This, naturally, though, upset Smuts deeply, and she apologized for hurting him, but she did not apologize for having published the letter. In December of 1904, as Hobhouse was planning to return to South Africa and establish a spinning and weaving school, her uncle, Lord Alfred Hobhouse, died. This was an enormous loss for Emily and for her Aunt Mary. Mary and Alfred had really been devoted to each other, and Emily had been really close to both of them. In a lot of ways, they had been like parents to her. Emily considered canceling her trip to stay with her aunt, but Mary insisted that she go. And we'll get to what happened after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Emily Hobhouse left for South Africa again in early 1905, along with two other women, Adeline Darby and Margaret Clark. Clark was a 26-year-old Quaker who had seen Hobhouse speak at a meeting a couple of years before, had found her really inspiring, and just wanted to assist her in her work, including going all the way to South Africa. During their voyage to South Africa, Hobhouse taught them spinning and weaving and other things associated with those tasks, 
and how to speak Boer Dutch. And they she had to keep up with those lessons, even though Margaret was really seasick. She was like, we are on a schedule. We got to be ready to go when we get there. Once they got to South Africa, they went to Philippolis in Orange River Colony, where a Jewish merchant had offered them a house and a shop that he wasn't using. They had help from two Black servants named Moses and Flora, as well as some assistance from people in the Boer community. But still, turning a disused house and shop into a place they could live and a functional weaving school was an enormous amount of work. Margaret became exhausted, and Emily was starting to feel the strain, so she eventually wrote to her friend Constance Klute in Cape Colony to ask her to come and help as well. This school opened on March 13, 1905, with room for 13 students, and within two weeks, all those slots were filled. Soon, Hobhouse was working on getting more equipment so they could teach more students, and she was getting requests from other towns to start schools there. But even when things seemed to be going pretty well, they were facing a lot of hiccups, like a shipment of hundreds of donated spinning wheels from Switzerland arrived broken, and they had to be repaired before they could be put to use. She did, though, eventually get the school in Philippolis established enough to turn her attention to opening up a second school in Longleit. Over this period, Hobhouse was starting to think about whether she should just move to South Africa permanently. Each voyage between England and South Africa typically took more than 20 days, and she was finding it increasingly difficult to divide her time and attention between the two places. She didn't want to make that decision without seeing her Aunt Mary again. But on May 4th, 1905, as she was planning to visit home, she received word that Lady Mary Hobhouse had died. Yeah, this was obviously another source of heartbreak for her. Emily Hobhouse started to feel really lonely during this period of her life. Adeline Darby had not really worked out at the weaving school, and she had gone back to Britain once a replacement arrived for her. Margaret Clark eventually went back to England as well, and Emily did have other friends in South Africa, so she thought maybe having a permanent home might help her feel more settled there. She had a house built with the help of Jan Smoots, but everything still just felt like a struggle. She made another trip back to England, but without her aunt living there, she just didn't feel like that was home anymore either. In 1907, while back in Europe, Hobhouse traveled to Switzerland to personally thank the Swiss for their support in the Home Industries Project. Funding had primarily come from the Boer Home Industries and Aid Society and from local fundraising in South Africa, but the Swiss had been really instrumental in providing spinning wheels, sending thousands of them, including people's donated heirlooms. Before going back to South Africa, she got a dog. This was a St. Bernard puppy that she named Caro, which had been her nickname for her old fiancé, John Carr Jackson. She adored that dog, but sadly, she had him for less than a year. Not long after she got back to South Africa, he got sick and died. She never got another dog, but after that, anytime she saw a person with a St. Bernard, she'd stop and she would talk to both the dog and the person. To make things worse, this all happened right around the same time that another man that Hobhouse had been interested in got married to someone else. So she focused on her work. The government of South Africa eventually got involved in setting up new spinning and weaving schools, with at least 26 schools established in the first decade of the 20th century. 
Eventually, oversight boards for the schools were established in both the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. And while they initially went to Hobhouse for advice and guidance, she eventually became less involved and less needed. So in October of 1908, she once again left for England. Yeah, the Orange Free State was technically the Orange River River Colony at that point, but I feel like the Orange Free State is the name that people associate most with it. She needed another project. I mean, that one, that feels like a success for the most part. I mean, it was a success that was focused, again, on on white people, but, like, she had started these schools and now they were running themselves, so she needed something else to do. She turned her attention to the suffrage movement. She helped establish the People's Suffrage Foundation, which advocated for universal adult suffrage. There were restrictions. Uh, It wasn't even that, like, all men could vote. There were property restrictions and things like that. So it was a universal adult suffrage organization. Her direct involvement in this organization was a little limited, though, because Hobhouse was spending a lot of her time in Italy The milder climate there helped improve her health, she thought. Being in Italy also gave her more opportunities to study lace-making, and she revived her plan to start a lace-making school in South Africa. This time, though, she did not do the physical work herself. She met Lucia Starace in Venice, and Starace worked with Constance Klote and Johanna Rude to set up the school. Hobhouse never personally visited this school. It was in a really remote location. She wasn't physically able to make the trip. She was experiencing angina, which people also say angina. She also had rheumatoid arthritis. She had reached a point where she needed to be carried up and down the steps to her apartment. She eventually went to Florence for medical treatment, which she paid for with a loan from Jan Smoots. Smoots thought this doctor was really a quack. But Hobhouse felt like the treatments helped, and it really, it does seem like, even if his treatments were suspect, she seems to have been able to be more active and mobile for a while afterward. Parliament passed the South Africa Act in 1909, unifying Britain's colonies there, by this point known as Cape Colony, Transvaal, Natal, and Orange River. This followed a national convention held in 1907 and 1908, at which all of the delegates were white. South Africa's Black, multiracial, and Asian residents were completely excluded from the process. Hobhouse had already witnessed racial segregation and discrimination in South Africa. As we talked about in Part 1, her own work was part of this. She had known about a separate set of concentration camps for Black people during the Second Anglo-Boer War, and she had tried to get somebody to investigate and to bring relief to them, but she had never visited them or tried to bring that relief herself. Her work was focused on other white people. Similarly, her post-war work in South Africa was still focused on the Boers, not on any people of color whose livelihoods were also destroyed in the war. At the same time, though, she did not agree with segregation or discrimination, and she was just deeply disheartened by the sense that these two groups of white people who had fought a war on someone else's homeland had now come together to form a new government that excluded and subjugated the Black, multiracial, and Asian population. Hobhouse carried this feeling into her work with sculptor Anton van Wauw in the early 19-teens. He had been born in the Netherlands and had later moved to South Africa, and he had been commissioned with sculpting a monument to commemorate the women and children who had died in concentration camps during the Boer War. 
He worked on the statue in Rome, starting from something Hobhouse had seen and recorded in the concentration camp in Springfontein in 1901. The monument is an obelisk with a statue of two women holding a dying child at the base. They went back and forth over the statue's design, but Hobhouse really did not feel that he was up to the task. At one point, writing to Jan Smith's wife, Isi, in a letter, quote, Oh, why, oh, why did they not put the thing into the hands of Rodin and some really great sculptor? I don't know why it cracks me up so much that she was like, obviously Rodin should have done this sculpture. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She also had some concerns about the monument itself and whether it really was commemorating all of the women and children who had died in the camps or only the white ones. In another letter, she asked, quote, if this is really a national monument provided by a national movement or only a free state affair. In spite of her misgivings about the inclusivity of the monument, Hobhouse traveled to South Africa for its unveiling in 1913. She also had misgivings about the trip itself. She was worried that she wasn't well enough to go. This concern turned out to be warranted. Although she did make it to Cape Town, she was too ill to make the journey to the monument's location in Bloemfontein. She had her speech translated and printed so it could be distributed to people there, and Charles Fischart, son of her late friend Caroline Fischart, read her remarks at the unveiling. In this address, she talked about what she had witnessed in the camps during the war, and how she'd watched the sculpture being created, how she'd traveled to South Africa for the unveiling, quote, in obedience to the solidarity of our womanhood and to those nobler traditions of English life in which I was nurtured and which, by long inheritance, are mine. She described her sympathy toward the people who had been held in the camps, both the survivors and those who had died, And she cautioned the audience not to open the doors to tyranny and selfishness, saying that in England, leaders were still struggling with this unlearned lesson. She went on to say, quote, Does not justice bid us remember today how many thousands of the dark race perished also in concentration camps in a quarrel not theirs? Did they not thus redeem the past? Was it not an instance of that community of interest which binding all in one roots out racial animosity? And may it not come about that the associations with this day will change, merging into nobler thoughts as year by year you celebrate the more inspiring Vrouwendag we now inaugurate. The plea of Abraham Lincoln for the Black comes echoing back to me. They will probably help you in some trying time to come to keep the jewel of liberty in the family of freedom. While in Cape Town, Emily met another figure whose legacy regarding race is complicated, and that was Mohandas Gandhi. We talked about how the system of racial apartheid developed in South Africa in our prior episode on the Women's March to Pretoria and how eventually Indian was added to that system as a catch-all term for anybody from Southeast Asia. There were also laws and policies that specifically applied to this community that were developing at this point. For example... Indian and Chinese people living in Transvaal had to register, submit their fingerprints, and carry paperwork at all times. People who had come to South Africa from Asia on an indenture had to pay a tax to stay in the country after their indenture ended. The Supreme Court had also ruled that only Christian marriages were legally recognized, something that disproportionately affected Asians who were more likely to be Hindu or Muslim. 
Gandhi was trying to address all of this, and Hobhouse heard that he was planning a protest march to Pretoria for New Year's Day 1914. She sent him a telegram advising him to hold the march while Parliament was in session instead. Otherwise, she thought it might just stoke people's hostilities rather than spurring the government into action. Gandhi had also been trying to meet with various government officials, including Jan Smuts, who at this point was Secretary of the Interior, and Louis Botha, who was the Prime Minister. Gandhi later credited Hobhouse with getting Botha to finally agree to having a meeting, and she also insisted to Smuts that he include Indians in discussions of matters that affected them. Hobhouse and Gandhi met in person when he came to Cape Town, and he described being with her as spiritually uplifting. He was there to wish her farewell when she departed for England in March of 1914, and they continued to be friends and correspondents for the rest of her life. That meeting was just a few months before the start of World War I, which we will get to after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Emily Hobhouse's experience during the Second Anglo-Boer War led to her becoming an ardent pacifist. Like, she had always been against that war. She became against all war. 
She was also opposed to what she described as narrow nationalism, which she thought led to conflict between nations. At the start of World War I, she wrote to Jan Smuts, who had been named Minister of Defense. He obviously held a ton of different positions during his lifetime. She tried to convince him to keep South Africa out of the war. This wasn't entirely his decision, since South Africa was a British dominion, but she was incredibly disappointed in him when Britain instructed South Africa to invade German Southwest, which is now Namibia, and South Africa did. This also prompted a failed uprising among the Boer population of South Africa, who overall did not want to get involved in another war so soon. Hobhouse wrote an anti-war open letter to the women of Europe, which read in part, quote, A hundred years ago, men proclaimed they fight as each country asserts it is fighting today to secure the rights, the freedoms, and the independence of all nations. War failed to secure these objects then. Can we reasonably suppose it will do so now? Past podcast subject Jane Addams invited Hobhouse to attend the International Women's Conference for Peace and Freedom in 1915. Although Hobhouse wrote the foreword to the report of the conference proceedings, she did not personally attend. She was worried about her health, and she also didn't think she'd be able to secure the necessary travel documents to get from Rome to The Hague and back. Hobhouse's anti-war advocacy had also caught the attention of authorities, and she was being kept under surveillance. In spite of that, when she was offered a job in Amsterdam working for the International Committee of Women for Permanent Peace, she managed to get back into England undetected so that she could have her travel documents updated. She traveled to Amsterdam via Bern, Switzerland. And while she was there, she met with German Ambassador Baron Giesbert von Romberg to try to advocate for peace, or at least for steps to be taken to minimize the impact of the war on the civilian population. Hobhaus stayed in Amsterdam working for the International Committee of Women for Permanent Peace for about three months. But when she went back to London in October of 1915, she and a servant she was traveling with were detained and questioned about their activities. They were ultimately released, but only after Hobhouse signed a document stating that she would not, quote, indulge in propaganda, especially anti-war propaganda. Hobhouse went back to Italy, and British authorities decided that if she came back into the UK, she was not going to be allowed to leave again. She stayed in Italy until April of 1916, and then she went to Switzerland, where she attended a meeting of anti-war socialists and a meeting of the International Women's Union. When British authorities heard about this, I mean, they'd previously made her say she was not going to do any anti-war propaganda. They ordered for her passport to be withdrawn and for her to come back to England. By that point, she'd gone back to Bern again to try to get permission to travel through German-occupied Belgium to see what conditions there were like. She also wanted to arrange relief efforts if she could. When she got a message asking her to stop by the British embassy, she suspected there was something afoot, so she left for her tour of Belgium without doing so. Although she did get to go to Belgium, she had a military escort the whole time, and her movements were tightly controlled, so she didn't feel like she got a true sense of what things were actually like there. A civilian going into enemy territory without permission, in the company of members of the enemy military, was a big deal. But Hobhouse's personal quest for peace during World War I did not stop there. 
She started corresponding with German foreign minister Gottlieb von Jagau. She got the sense from him that Germany was willing to talk terms for peace, at least in like an unofficial sense. When Hobhouse returned to Bern, British ambassador Sir Evelyn Grant Duff questioned her about what she'd been doing. Understandably, he found it alarming. He berated her about having unauthorized meetings with German officials, traveling to German territory without British permission, and basically making herself into an unauthorized one-person peace delegation. Knowing that she was in trouble, Hobhouse tried to make a plan to keep a line of communication open to von Jagau's office, one that was complete with very spy-like cryptic instructions and vague letters and code words. British authorities discovered some of this. They questioned her again. They searched all of her belongings and then sent her back to London. Various authorities described her as everything from a silly old woman to a German agent and propagandist. In response to her actions, the Defense of the Realm Act was amended to specifically forbid British subjects from traveling into enemy territory without official permission. Hobhouse was never prosecuted for anything, though, probably because there were concerns that it would turn her into a martyr, particularly among people of Dutch descent in South Africa who really saw her as a hero. Hobhouse was already detested in many circles in Britain because of her activities during the Boer War and because of her pacifism. And at this point, she was seen as doubly a traitor, first for siding with the Boers and then for siding with Germany. Although she never actually sided with each one, she was consistently on the side of civilians who were being harmed, and she was against war in general. Her reputation took another blow when one of her relatives, Stephen Hobhouse, was imprisoned as a conscientious objector. When World War I ended in 1918, Hobhouse thought the situation in continental Europe was probably a lot like what it had been in South Africa after the Second Anglo-Boer War. So once again, she started traveling to assess the situation and raising money to try to provide relief. She co-founded the Swiss Relief Fund for Starving Children, which later became part of the Save the Children Fund. She also established the Russian Babies Fund and acted as its chair. Through these organizations, she raised money and started distributing things like food and milk. In 1919, she went to Vienna with a friend and found that thousands of children there were still starving. She raised more money to try to help, including contacting Jane Addams, various Quaker organizations, and other likely supporters for money. She got donations from people she'd previously helped in South Africa, this time to help the children of Europe. According to her records from January 1920 to January 1921, her work provided 2.4 million hot meals for children. This work took a physical toll on her, and in 1921, a doctor ordered her to take a month of bed rest. She tried to keep working, and she started using a wheelchair, but eventually she returned to Italy, where she had to be hospitalized. The work she had started continued, though, with another 1.4 million meals provided between January of 1921 and March of 1922. We touched on Hobhouse's suffrage advocacy earlier, and in 1922, after a change in the law, she became eligible to vote because she owned property. But we don't know if she actually did. In her early life, she had generally sided with the Liberal Party. But during her work in South Africa, she had become increasingly socialist. 
As this election approached, she told her brother Leonard, quote, who on earth is there to vote for? Full suffrage, regardless of gender or things like property or ownership, wasn't granted in the UK until after her death. When Emily Hobhouse turned 60, she started looking for a home where she could spend her last years. And she fell in love with a house in St. Ives. This time, not St. Eve. This is in Cornwall, obviously. This was much bigger than one person really needed, and its two-story layout wasn't entirely practical for her, considering that sometimes she was not able to climb stairs. But she really, really fell in love with it, and it had enough room for friends from other parts of Europe and from South Africa to stay with her when they visited. It was also well beyond her financial means. Her friend, Tibby Stain from South Africa, took up a collection to help her buy it, feeling that South Africa had never adequately thanked her and owed her a debt of honor. When that collection wasn't enough, Jan Smuts and Annie Botha, widow of the late Louis Botha, contributed the rest. Every year on her birthday, Emily got lots of gifts from South Africa, and she called them wonder boxes, and she often held on to things like dried fruits and honey and biscuits to serve to friends from South Africa when they came to visit. While living in St. Ives, Hobhouse started putting her personal papers in order and writing an autobiography. She got through her life from 1899 until the establishment of the weaving schools, but she never finished it and it was never published. She also translated the wartime diary of Ali Badenhorst and published it as Tant Ali of Transvaal. Badenhorst had given Hobhouse this journal with the hope that it, one day it would be published. She was, quote, desirous that future generations should know and avoid the cruelty of war. She also translated narratives Boer women had written for themselves in the camps, or if they were written in English by women who didn't actually know English very well, she edited them. She published these accounts as War Without Glamour or Women's War Experiences Written by Themselves in 1924. Eventually, Hobhouse couldn't handle the stairs anymore. She started living only on the bottom floor of the house using the study as her bedroom. She sold that house in 1923 and moved to a smaller place. She also made a trip to Germany to see how it was recovering from the war and how it was faring in light of the penalties against it that were part of the Treaty of Versailles. She used a wheelchair for mobility on this trip, but she had to cut it short after falling down some stairs and being seriously injured. After getting home again, she issued a plea for relief to be sent to the people of Germany, it's come up on the show a number of times that, like, these sanctions that were placed after World War I fed into a lot of things that led to World War II. Mm -hmm. In the last years of her life, Emily Hobhouse was increasingly ill, and she didn't have a permanent place to live. She died in London on June 8, 1926, at the age of 66. Her cause of death was listed as pleuritis, heart failure, and cancer. A funeral service in Kensington was attended mostly by family and friends. At her request, Emily Hobhouse's body was cremated and her ashes were sent to South Africa. She had been made an honorary South African citizen and a funeral was held for her in Bloemfontein on October 27, 1926. It was the only state funeral ever held for a foreigner in South Africa. 
Thousands of people came to pay their respects. The front rows of the church were filled with about 400 women who had been in the concentration camps or who had attended one of the weaving schools that Hobhouse had established. Jan Smuts and his wife were there, as well as several other government officials. A funeral procession escorted Hobhouse's ashes from the church to the women's monument that she had helped design. This procession was led by six boys who had been in the concentration camps who were now grown men. There were six girls who carried the casket containing her ashes, and then six people who had been named after her. There was also an orchestra, hundreds of women delegates, and official guests as part of this procession. Thousands of people were gathered at the Women's Monument, and multiple people gave addresses there, including Jan Smuts. The daughter of Joanna Rood, who had helped establish the lace-making school and had become Joanna Osborne after getting married, released a flock of white doves as Emily Hobhouse's ashes were interred at the monument. Gandhi wrote a tribute to Emily Hobhouse shortly after her death, and it read in part, quote, she worked without ever thinking of any reward. Hers was a service of humanity dedicated to God. Describing his own efforts toward the rights of Indians in South Africa, he also wrote, quote, she made my way smooth among them by throwing in the whole weight of her influence with the Indian cause. Emily Hobhouse was obviously beloved by the Boers of South Africa, who she had spent so much of her life trying to help. The town of Hobhouse in the South African province of Free State is named after her. But her legacy has not been entirely positive. As we've discussed in both parts of this episode, her work in South Africa was focused on white people, particularly the Boers, who were a tiny minority compared to the native Black population and its diverse collection of kingdoms, nations, ethnic groups, and languages. Apart from her work with Gandhi, she did not focus on people of color at all. After her death, Emily Hobhouse's work with the concentration camps and her documentation of the conditions there, which were, in many cases, legitimately horrifying and appalling, they became part of Boer nationalism in South Africa. The camps themselves and the scorched earth policy that led to there being so many of them both contributed to the development of Boer and later Afrikaner as an identity, And one aspect of that identity for a lot of people was the idea of having been oppressed at the hands of the British, which was then used to justify a sense of racial superiority. There's a sense of, like, the Boers were the real victims here, ignoring the indigenous people of Africa who are left out of that discussion entirely. The focus of Hobhouse's work on only white South Africans was only one aspect of all of this. Another was her focus on white women specifically. Many of the accounts she published began with women's experiences on their homes and farms and what happened to them as they were fleeing toward or being forced into the concentration camps. And some of those experiences involved being the victims of violence carried out by Black men. Many of these men were either fighting alongside the British or were fighting to protect their own lands and peoples from encroachment or violence by white people. But this context didn't matter. Instead, these accounts reinforced a narrative of white women needing to be protected specifically from violence at the hands of Black men. And that played a part into the system of racism and apartheid in South Africa. It's the same narrative that was used to support white supremacy and the lynching of Black men in the United States. 
The idea of the Boers as having been violently oppressed by the British fed into Afrikaner nationalism heading into the middle of the 20th century. The National Party, which came to power in 1948, really took Emily Hobhouse as something of an emblem and used her work to justify a sense of white racial grievance. The National Party is the party that formalized the system of racial apartheid that then remained in place in South Africa for almost 50 years. Of course, none of this happened in isolation, and Hobhouse's work was not the only thing involved. For decades after the war, British accounts of it disingenuously also described the Boers as dirty and uneducated, including when they were being held in concentration camps at which there literally was no soap. British accounts also largely glossed over the worst aspects of the camps, focusing on the ones that were somewhat better provisioned and organized when they were discussed at all. Conversely, most writing about the war in the camps from the Boer perspective was in the form of things like poetry and songs that commemorated and memorialized the hardship. More objective historical examination of the war itself and Britain's concentration camps for the Boers has been a lot more recent. And this is also true of research into Britain's concentration camps for Black South Africans during the war. I mean, a lot of that research is just within the last couple of decades. Even though Emily Hobhouse tried to get someone else to visit and investigate those camps, the fact that apparently no one did and that she also did not do it herself meant that they were just poorly documented to the general public as much of the war was happening. That trend continued after the war was over. And then, as apartheid was implemented in the decades after the war, that became the way bigger focus. So when apartheid was dismantled, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that followed it was really focused on the period from 1960 until 1994. It wasn't looking all the way back to the Boer War. So, like, as I was uh, researching this, I I just kept unearthing more and more things about the the camps that were specifically for Black people in South Africa that are just brand new, written within the last couple of years. So this is obviously work that is still ongoing and is still important and was delayed in part by Hobhouse's decisions. This is a heavy duo of episodes. Do it you, is. Do you have listener mail that's less heavy? I have a listener tweet. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Uh, I have a listener tweet from Joseph who tweeted at us, Bucky Fuller produced his own world map projection called the Dimaxian projection. He really liked the word Dimaxian. Uh, I had never heard of this map projection before. I looked it up after getting this tweet. Uh, obviously, this is this follows our Mercator projection episode. That is a fascinating projection. We talked about in that episode how the Mercator projection is the, the globe projected onto uh, a cylinder. This is a globe, you know, which is normally a sphere, projected onto an icosahedron, which is a geometric shape with 20 faces, like a 20-sided die, approximately, but not really, uh, and then just unfolded. It is uh, just a fascinating-looking one. I, I, I guess a, a convex one is roughly like the shape of a 20-sided die, but it can also be uh, arranged differently. Um, I'm doing a bad job of explaining what this <laughs> looks like. But anyway... 
it is a map projection where the relative sizes um, of the land masses are pretty much preserved, but you have all kinds of disruption in the map itself. That's the thing that is sacrificed to make up for that. In this tweet, uh, Joseph also uh, noted that uh, that Buckminster F- uh, Fuller uh, had thought about taking his own life, but then uh, did not do that and stopped speaking for a year and then invented a bunch of amazing things. Buckminster Fuller is a fascinating person who maybe someday will be an episode of the show. Um, I... It was the person where I was like, do we not have an episode on him already? I don't think we do. <laughs> um, so anyway, thank you for that tweet and for giving me the chance to look at that very wild projection of the map. It looks like a geometry puzzle to me. Yeah. Because it does, like, things form into, like, when you lay it out flat, there are big, like, sort of, you know, angled gaps and stuff. And it looks, it looks like a puzzle you're supposed to solve. Well, and he's... Uh, he popularized geodesic domes, and it it that like it really makes sense to me that he would have a, a fascination with this also. Like that's oh yeah, the DNA is shared between them. Yeah, when sure. I first looked at it, I was like, this looks almost like a map that was projected onto a geodesic dome and then taken apart. So anyway, thank you again for that tweet. <laughs> if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're also all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app, wherever else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable.